Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal to join my wine club. These wines are unbelievable. Don't miss out on this. And if you want to see what I'm drinking, go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. Last week, we did the first part of the Cote de Nuit. Very complicated stuff. And hopefully you had a week to absorb it if you're listening to this in real time with us. Now the quiz begins. Yes. And now we're going to have a full-on exam. Good. So the exam starts now. A, C. Right. Okay, good. Well, then you passed. B. You did really well. Okay, great. Fantastic. None of the above. I will say that this week I, I have a little bit of a lower energy level because I have two things this week that I really hate. A, daylight saving time. I hate it more than anything in the entire world. Every year, it drives me crazy. I'm like, just decide on a time. You know how much I hate it. I I hate it. I hate it. I I dread it. Everyone hates it. And the other thing I hate, which may be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh It is me. Oh. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, International (laughs) Women's Day, which I'm like, Thank you for the pat on the head and 50% of the population. How can you only get a day? You should get a month. Let me just tell you, I make history every day. It may not be good history. I and all of the other women are out there making history every day. We do not need a day. We need respect and equal pay. That's what I have to say. How do you like that? That rhymes. There's my slogan. I like okay. that. Not too happy about that day. I find it very condescending. Condescending. Yeah. yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah? I do. I do. You know, every year I complain about that day. I know. I don't like the month either. This, this is just a whole lot of badness. But it is the month that our younger daughter was born. Correct. You know what I really liked about March when we were younger? You didn't like a lion out like a yeah. lamb. Yeah. And you got to do the plate. Uh, the plate thing, yes. Right? Didn't with, you, you do the plate? You make the little lamb with the, the, lamb with the cotton the, balls on the one then, side. And then had that popsicle stick and you turned it over. Right. And there was and a lion would, on the other that's side. That's right. Because you it had the, so the, 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 the corrugated uh, edge of the plate makes for a nice mane to color. You know what I just realized? Hmm. I guess it would be October in the Southern Hemisphere where oh, it's turning. Yeah. Right? Right. We always say March goes in like a lion, out like a lamb, but they're going to be saying October goes in like a lion and out like a lamb, right? Well, we'll have to save it for, we've got a few months to work on the project then. Okay. All right. Anyway, if you have no idea what we're talking about, it's a very cute little project. And if you have children, you have to do it with them because it's so cute. All right. So just to review, when we last left our heroes, we were in Burgundy in the Côte de Nuit, which is in the northern half of the limestone strip, the most famous place for Chardonnay and Pinot in the world, Pinot Noir mm-hmm. in the world. And the Cote de Nuit is famed for Pinot. I do have to say something. So I'm teaching the Wines of France class and I re-up the research, right? Like every class I redo Correct. just to make sure. And the Wines of Burgundy, which has for the last 10 years had statistics on what is planted there, mm-hmm. all of a sudden has taken this off of their site. So now the only statistic that I was able to find is that now they're saying 95% of the Cote de Nuit is Pinot. Previously it was 80%. Hmm. I wonder if they, did they put it behind a paywall? No, I would pay it's for just that. Gone. It's gone. And oh, then wow. you can't, you don't see the breakdown of the Cote de Bone or the Cote Chalonnaise anymore. So I don't Something know. Something fishy's going on. Well, I, agree. I think I'm going to write to them and find out why they decided to take that off. I a- don't know aliens, if it's climate obviously. change. No, I wonder if with climate change, the mix is changing. I don't oh, know. I don't be. know. What I can tell you is that undoubtedly there is more Pinot in the Cote de Nuit than Chardonnay. There's barely any Chardonnay. And these are vineyards that are on this limestone band that is facing mainly east. It's going to maximize that morning sun exposure. Mm -hmm. They are at altitude. This is not a flat place. And Cote d'Or, they're in the Cote d'Or, Cote d'Orient, east, East, right, eastern facing. There are... Premier and Grand Cru, they were the versions of Bordeaux's 1855 classification. Now, I would like to bring that up because I think it's a very interesting and not very well-known detail that in 1862, there was a call for Burgundy to do what Bordeaux did, which is classify its wine. And that is how we get the Grand Cru, Premier Cru, the Village wines, and then the regional wines. 
they decided that in Burgundy, terroir and vineyard were more important than chateau Hmm. or domain in this case. But there is a classification, and I will dig it up, where even the Grand Cru were classified as Grand Cru, and there were some that were considered second-class Cru. Interesting to know, because today we just see, okay, well, there's 33 Grand Cru, and they're all famous. Right. But that's not the case. There's actually some gradation, and real Burgundy people who have money to spend and study all of this and whatever do know that there is some difference between these, and Hmm. I'll point some of that out. Now, I will give the caveat again that I haven't had any of these wines. um, because. Well, because positive. No, I've had so I've had the wines of Corton because they're more affordable. Mm-hmm. I haven't had the Grand Cru. They're just too expensive. And I'll give the prices as I did last time because I think it's just amusing. Can't Is this really. the one that was like seven thousand dollars or yeah, yeah. Oh, oh no, I got or I got thirteen thousand. I got much more for you. Okay. This is the most expensive in the world. Now, these vineyards have been around since the Middle Ages or before that, being classified by the monks. So the tradition of the single vineyard or of a vineyard of special standing was already there from the monks. And that's the 900s, 600, 800, 900s. Mm -hmm. But putting it on paper, that was coming out of that era in the mid-1800s where people really wanted some classifications of things. Yep. So the best sites are the Grand Cru. They're about 1.4% of Burgundy's production. It is a tiny amount. I'd like to just contrast it with Bordeaux, their top wines, the premier, their mm-hmm. premier Cru Classe. Their production overall is a lot bigger, and they have bigger estates. Okay. So there's more of it hanging out there. Okay, that's good to know. And really great wine from second growths and third growths is available much more widely in Bordeaux than it is in Burgundy because Bordeaux is a lot bigger. Got it. Anyway, the style is going to depend on the character of the village or the commune. The last time we covered Marcinet, Bicine, which you loved, Fixin. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Gevray, <laughs> <laughs> Chambreton. Mm-hmm. And then this time we are going to cover Moray Saint-Denis, Chambon-Musigny, and the very famous Von Romani, which has the vineyard of Romani Conti, which has the most expensive wine in the world and, and probably the most famous. And these wines are different. Gevray Chambreton is, in terms of Pinot, it's a bigger wine. I was say, it's a would more I like, structured would wine. Would I like these wines? Yes, all of these are absolutely delicious. They're oh, spectacular. D- darn it. I want to revisit all of the communes. I've had most of the wines of the communes before, but I'd like to revisit them after doing this. They're expensive. They start at around 50 US dollars, 50 to 70 US dollars. They're expensive. It's going to take us some time to go through them. We can buy them when we, we can swing it. But it makes sense to just sort of have say, a, a reference point for all of this. I seeing any of these. You have wines and you don't remember anything. So <laughs> within each of these villages, you have different vineyards and they're going to show different characteristics because of the soil structure, because of the terror. Wow. Let's go to Moray Saint-Denis. It's a communal or village appellation. Moray comes from the Latin Moriacum, which mm-hmm. means the property of the Moors. Oh. In the last podcast, we talked about the Grand Cru, La Tricier Chambreton of Gevry Chambreton. And that is separated from Moray Saint-Denis by Premier Cru. In the Middle Ages, Moray was ruled by the very powerful religious house of Verger. They actually gifted the abbeys of Situ, the Cistercian monks, most of their land in 1120. 1120. I just want that to sink in how old this is. Wow. By the 1300s, they actually sold it to another abbey. The Cistercians acquired it again in the 1400s. They owned most of the property in Moray Saint-Denis with some of the great Burgundian families until the French Revolution. Now, there were some other events, actually, that happened in Moray. And I'm bringing this up, the history, because I'm about to say something about it. And I just want to give a little background, which is that the town was both wholly owned by monks. Ha, no, no pun intended. Ha, ha, ha. And it also suffered very badly from the plague. And it was also destroyed by fire in the 1600s. Okay. And they had some bad luck mm-hmm. in Moray. Part of the problem for Moray is that it's never had the reputation like Gevray or its southern neighbor Chambol. And they used to sell wines as Gevray Chambreton or as Chambol Musigny. So people did not get to know how great the wines were of Moray Saint-Denis. But the thing about Moray is that the wines are just as good 
they just are not known and they're not credited for being as good, except hmm. for, you know, some of the Grand Cru are. The Village wines are excellent, but nobody really talks about Marie Saint-Denis. So this is, is, these are a good value then? Um, They can be. They're still really expensive. But it's not that if you said, oh, I had a wine from Marais Saint-Denis to a Burgundy snob, they'd be uh-huh. like, oh, my God. Okay. They're not going to be like that. If okay. you say that you had something from Von Romani or Chambol uh-huh. or Gevray. Yes. And the other thing is, that because they were looked down on and because they were selling their stuff as Gervais Chambertin, they planted a lot of Gamay, which is completely looked down on in this part of Burgundy. Everyone else was doing Pinot, but by 1855, only 70 hectares of 160 hectares or 173 acres of 395 acres were Pinot. The rest was Gamay. Do you have any idea why they brought in the Gamay? It's easy to grow. And people loved it. Yeah. To sell into the masses at that point? Yeah, well, they were selling it to local people. They didn't have the fame, so they wanted to sell it. And that's how you do it. You sell the wines that people really liked, which were Gamay. Mm -hmm. The Dukes of Burgundy outlawed Gamay because they thought it was a horrible grape. They said it was bad for human health. (laughs) But the people really enjoy Gamay. And who doesn't love a good Gamay? Who doesn't love Cru Beaujolais? They're delicious. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, they appended the name of the vineyard Gevry Chambertin style late, right? Gevry was in the 1800, mid-1800s. They didn't append Saint-Denis until 1927. And the crazy thing about it is that their best vineyard is not Clos Saint-Denis. It is actually Clos de la Roche or Clos de Tarte. It's debated to this day why they decided that it was going to be Maurice Saint-Denis and not de la Roche. Yeah. Really a strange thing, and it's really unclear about why they didn't do that. Huh. But anyway, there's both red and white in Murray Sundani. The red is about 219 acres or 88.5 hectares. The white is like 6 hectares or 14 acres. Less than 5% is white. Actually, for all of what I just said about Murray Sundani, 20 Premier crew in this area. That's a lot. They're not very well known, but there are a lot of them. You may see Marais Saint-Denis Premier Cru without the name. Right. So that's blended across several different Premier Cru. It's tiny. I mean, it's 0.62 miles wide from north to south or one kilometer. And the terroir is limestone, clay limestone from the Jurassic period. Mm-hmm. They do have some of that white oolitic soil upslope. They have some fossilized limestone at the foot. Very well drained, especially on the higher slopes. Average altitude about 220 to 270 meters or 722 feet to 886 feet. As I keep saying, Burgundy is not flat. We're up at altitude. That's Mm going to make a difference. The village wines are on the lowest and highest slopes. What takes up mid-slope? Grand Cru, Premier Cru. Always mid-slope and sometimes upper slope, but usually just middle slope. Okay. The whites are going to do well at the highest point at 350 meters, which is about 1150 feet. And that is white grapes for either the village level or Premier Cru. The reds tend to be brambly and woodsy and like licorice and forest floor with time. They're going to turn truffly. They're pretty perfumed. 50 US dollars plus for the village wines. Some great producers, Dujac, Arlon, Domaine Ponceau. And then there's really expensive ones who aren't based here. Domaine Leroy is just incredibly expensive. Rousseau, Romier. Four Grand Cru within Moray. They are all in a line above the town. So you've got Clos de Tarte, Clos de la Roche, Clos Saint-Denis, Clos de Lambre, which is a monopole. It's owned by Domaine de Lambre. And then you have Bon Mar. We're not going to talk about Bon Mar here. It's a tiny little portion that is in Moray Saint Denis. Mm-hmm. It's really in Chambol, Musigny, the next commune. Okay. All right. So the Grand Cru are 100% Pinot. Clos de la Roche, which is probably their top vineyard, 17 hectares, 42 acres. Most northerly Cru, the southern extension, really, of Gevray Chambertin mm-hmm. in the north. Interesting history. Roche. Roche means rock. Right. Now, They think that the rock might have been a rock that was used by Druids for sacrifice. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What kind of sacrifice? Who knows? It also could be because there's big rocks in the vineyard, but a lot of people say, well, why is it Roche? Why isn't it plural? Plural. Right. It's just Roche. A lot of people think it's that Druidic sacrifice. That's a lore. Rochambeau. Yeah, Rochambeau. So anytime you see Clo, 
That means a wall encompassing a vineyard. So that's long oh, since it does. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, clo means wall. Okay. Yeah. The vineyard actually, before they even had the AOC system, it grew from four and a half hectares or 11 acres in 1861 to 16, almost 17 hectares or 42 acres. And that is because it absorbs some of the Ludi, the better sites at the same altitude with the same geological mixture. So it, usually that happened before they got classified, just to include a little bit more, but this happened a lot earlier. So this is one of the larger Grand Cru sites at 42 acres. Only a few are larger, Corton, Claude de Vigeau, Echezeau, and Charn Chambertin, which we talked about last time. Those are the only ones that are bigger. The terroir of Claude de la Roche, it's going to face east. It's going to have a gentle incline, good drainage, limestone. All of this is the same on these Grand Cru. This wine is apparently plush. It's got black cherry and hummus, humus. I always say that wrong. Humus. Yes, right. it does. It's not chickpeas. <laughs> Full bodied. Right, I promise this will be like the last time that I read from the Wines of Burgundy book, but this one was really pretty. Uh, is this the one you called me about? Yeah, I had yeah. to call you about it because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this says this. Since we're talking about Claude de la Roche. Okay, so this is Claude de la Roche section. It is the biggest and the classiest of the Moray Grand Cru, but the structure has an inherent lushness to it. There's none of the austerity of Chambertin or the muscular density of Bonmar. The fruit has an element of the exotic with a splendidly seductive perfume of Mertel, bilberry huckleberry, sometimes black cherry violets or truffles. Ample and classy it certainly is, but dignified? I think not. It definitely doesn't stand on its dignity. What the F? It's so ridiculous. I don't... That is a sentence that says, absolutely nothing to me about what that wine is. Nothing. I mean, dignified? I don't is know. Is it she dignified? Sa- it certainly doesn't. What is I don't know if it's, yeah, I don't know if it's any good, but she sounds pretty hot. I mean, right? <laughs> pretty, pretty. I was mortified reading that. That's not an appropriate way to describe a wine. And if the purpose of language is to communicate mm. stuff, that didn't communicate anything. Missed the mark on that one. Yeah. But the prices are ridiculous. Domaine Leroy, which I mentioned before, $2,000 to $7,000 for one bottle. That's Domaine amazing. Armand Rousseau, $750 to $1,200. Ponceau, $400 to $600. Yeah. How long did you think you'd have to lay these down before you could drink them? Great question. Generally, with the Grand Cru, you're looking at at least 10 years before you want to be thinking about drinking them. 10 years is when they hit their stride. Okay. They might go 20 years, might go 30 years. Burgundy is not Bordeaux where... 50 years later, you're going to want to drink it. It's going to lose something. Yep. The next one is Clos Saint-Denis, which the town is named for. Mm -hmm. Six and a half hectares or 15 acres. Named for the 11th century religious order that was founded in 1023. The vineyard of Clos Saint-Denis was identified somewhere between the thousands and the 1200s. Saint-Denis was a Parisian saint. So that's where that comes from. Just like everything else, mid-slope, eastern exposure. This has a little more rock and more clay. Specifically, it has a bit more clay than Claude de la Roche. So if you were going to compare it, it is a bit more perfumed and a bit more elegant than Claude de la Roche. But Claude de la Roche is way more respected. Hmm. You can pick up a Claude Saint-Denis for $130 to $300 hmm. from Georges Legnier, Domaine du Jacques, who's really one of the top producers. $725 to $1,200, and Domaine Arlong around $300. Expensive, but not untouchable in the sense that okay. you could get together with some friends and chip in and buy it. You know, nice. everybody gives 20 bucks. That's a good idea. Yeah. We should do that, I mean, I think, I think that's actually a really good way. Maybe I should do that when we do a live that's hangout. That's a great idea, you know? yeah. Like if there's that. not that many people or we just buy a couple of bottles of these... If everybody chips in $20, you get a taste of it, right. you know? Just a thought. All right. Claude de Lambre, 8.67 hectares, 21 acres. They got their AOC, their Appellation Origine Controle, in 1981. Mm. West of the village, reaches really high up the hill than other Grand Cru, probably around since the 1400s, had a lot of owners because of the Napoleonic Code, up to 70 owners after the French Revolution. So in the 1940s, the wine was great. It was owned by a family called the Cossant family. It fell on hard times, and the widow, uh-huh. Renée Cosson, 
could not get the land classed as a ground crew in the 1930s. And then the vineyards really hit a period of decline from the 1940s. They were still really good. 1950s, 60s. And after she died in 1977, it changed hands and it was not in good shape. So the people that acquired it lobbied for a promotion of the Grand Cru. It was not based on the wine, though, because they had to get it back into shape. It was based on the land. And that really speaks to the fact that Burgundy is willing to classify things based on land, the potential of the land, not necessarily the wine, because Clos de Lambre needs to be a Grand Cru because of the soil types. They've got slightly northeast-facing slopes, lots of pure limestone here. So a totally different character. Claude de Lambre is a monopole. It is one owner, Domaine de Lambre. It's about $200 to $500 Hmm. a bottle. However, there is another producer who makes wine that they allow to make wine, Domaine Topeno Merm, and that is $1,800 a bottle. I'm not sure what that's about, but I'm never going to taste this one. No, not anytime soon anyway. (laughs) All right, Claude de Tar, seven hectares. 17 acres, mm-hmm. got its Appalachian Origin Controle in 1939, just around the same time as everybody else. Southern end of Moray, Saint-Denis. It's above the village. It borders Bonmar, which we'll talk about when we talk about Chambord Musigny, borders Clos de Lambre. Clos de Tarte is actually also a monopole. It was created in the 1100s. The plot was called La Forge. It was sold to the nuns of the Notre Dame de Tarte order. Only four religious orders or families across eight centuries have owned oh this property. The borders have not changed since 1251. That's amazing. The nuns controlled it until the end of the 1700s. Then you had the French Revolution. It was auctioned off, and in 1932, it was sold to the Momessin family. It was sold again in 2017 to a French billionaire for 225 million euro. Jeez. It is a coveted wine. It's from a single domain, very consistent, tannic and spicy. Again, all these prices are from Wine Searcher, 500 to 600 US dollars. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're making that 220 million back in what couple seasons or so. Yeah. They don't make that much wine, so I'm not <laughs> sure how long it would take. We'd have to do the math. Chambon-Musigny is the next communal appellation. Very small area. Less than 500 people live in the village. Is this giving you a good sense of what is here? Mm -hmm. Like, we're talking about tiny little plots. The pricing is starting to make more sense as you listen to this. The vineyards are around the village. They go south towards Vougeot, which we're going to talk about, and Flagey-Echezot. Part of the Abbey of Situ, 1100, Mm -hmm. after it was donated to a religious order. They all wanted to make their way to heaven, so they kept (laughs) donating land to the religious orders. Hey, it's your religion, man. You know, I don't know why you're laughing, you know? Uh, It's just a brilliant scheme. You guys are smart. I I don't know know how you managed it, but you wound up doing a good job. The name Chambault comes from Champbouillant, which is a bubbling field. There's heavy rains that flow down the slopes, when a local stream overflowed, right. they thought it was a kind of a bubbly field and huh. they called it Chambol. And Musigny was added. Musigny is indeed the most famous vineyard. It was added to Chambol in 1882. Red only for Village and Premier Cru wine. It is considered some of the best Pinot in the world. With Gevray Chambertin and Von Romani, these are considered the best. Okay. They are also the lightest and they are very perfumed. I have to confess that I've had a Chambol oh, Musigny and I have a hard Not time with it. Not good enough for you. Yep. It's, it's just mm-hmm. a little bit difficult for me because it's almost too light. I've had that problem with Volnay also. These Volnay and the Cote de Bone is similar to Chambol and Musigny. It's How a, about the perfuminess? I thought you, I, you, I do you like generally that. like perfume, I gen- right? generally like that. I especially like it in Pinot because mm-hmm. it tends to be spicy, like Indian spices oh, and things okay. like that, which I really like. Or it has an earthiness, which I really like mm-hmm. also. I have to confess, at least the one I had, and maybe it was just the one, and I've only had it once. It's bad on me for not trying it more often, but I don't really have 60 bucks laying around all the time. But I think that that's not the case with the Grand Cru. So you have 150 three hectares or 378 acres, 138 of those acres or 55 hectares of that are Premier Cru, 24 Premier Cru in this area. The slope is going to face east just like everything else. High altitudes, 250 to 300 meters, 820 to 984 feet. Really shallow soils, heavily soils and fissures in the Jurassic limestone that are going to let the roots really dig down. There is a lot of limestone here. Not a whole lot of clay. 
That's why you have lighter or more ethereal wines. That's the difference. Less clay usually results in more minerality. Erosion is actually a huge issue here because, well, because you've got these slopes. The soil is really infertile. They produce way less wine than other villages, which is why it can be very expensive. But aromatic, silky, spice and prune and truffle and underbrush and violets, all of that. Sounds good. Yes, but very light. Two Grand Cru. Bonmar, which I mentioned has a little slice in Moray, Saint-Denis, just south of Clos de Tarte. The name has been around since the Middle Ages. Marer means to cultivate carefully. Hmm. So Bonmar. Elevations, same as everything else. Plots that are on the Moray end are richer and deeper and heavier and more tannic because there's clay there. Uh. In the southern end, you have these finer fossilized oysters, limestone, and there you get more perfumed and elegant wines. This is just so terroir-driven. It's the same vineyard. We're talking about 37 acres or 15 hectares. And just over that, you get two completely different wines. There's that much variability in one vineyard. Yeah, and Bonmar is famed, and those wines are really great, but the real stunner here is Le Mucini. We'll take a step away from the podcast to thank our supporters this week. First of all, you, the patrons on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wine for normal people is how you can join the community and get in on live hangouts with people from all over the world. We are doing so many fun events, lots of tips and discounts on classes. And the most important thing, the patrons help keep this podcast going. Without Patreon, there would be no podcast. We appreciate all of the patrons and hope that you will join them. Also, don't forget wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes. New classes are being posted. So make sure that you get on that before they sell out. I keep the class size small so I can interact with every single one of you. And we need to thank Wine Access, wines that are curated from around the world by the most credentialed team there is. You can shop their site, sign in for wine clubs, get their daily email to learn more about wine. Wine Access, wineaccess.com slash WFMP. You get 10% off your first order. If you are concerned about ordering online, you don't have to worry about that. Customer service is awesome. They will make anything right if it goes wrong, and it really never does. They've got a never settle guarantee. If you don't like the wine, they will give you a credit for the bottle. This is my go-to for well-priced wines. I'm so excited about the Wine Access, Wine for Normal People, Wine Club. We have a few spots left for it, so if you want to get in on it, please do. Go to wineaccess.com normal and sign up for the wine club. And to see what I am drinking right now, go to wineaccesswineacces.com forward slash WFNP, and you will see my page. Don't forget about, I mentioned it last week, that wine from Corna, one of the best Syrahs I have ever had from Domaine Durand, wineaccesswineacces.com slash WFNP, 10% off your first order support Wine Access as they support us. They help keep this podcast going just as the patrons do. Do it today. You won't regret it. And now let's get back to the show. Musani, Le Musani or Musani with Romani Conti, Latache, Chambertin, Claude de Bez, considered the best in the Cotonouille. Super gonna, rare. I was going to say that we're not getting any. No, we're not getting any. One of two of the Grand Cru's that produces white and red. Corton also produces white and red. This is right in the middle of the Cotonou. It is above the Clos de Vigeau. The Musani family gave the name to the appellation. They had important positions in the court of the Dukes of Bourgogne in the 14th century. Even though Musani was expanded in 1929 and again in 1989 to include some Premier Cru, it's still so small and so ridiculously coveted. So it, there's two sections. The north is larger. That's Grand Musani or just Musani. The south is a monopole of Domaine Comte Georges de Vosges. Rocky terraced. This has a pretty decent slope between 8 and 14 percent. Oh, Very wow. well drained. Mm-hmm. More clay here. The vines are going to dig deep. The reds are elegant, aromatic, intense. They're described as Wild rose, violet, red cherries, licorice, mineral, forest floor, 
with time. They're more leathery, complex Mm. with tannins. Some of the most expensive wines in the world. That flavor profile is right up your alley. Yeah, I'll never taste it. Uh, White, (laughs) I especially won't ever taste because it's 6.66 hectares or 1.63 acres of Chardonnay. I mean, at that point, you're counting grapes. Really, (laughs) you are? So listen to this crazy thing. It's that monopole of Comte Georges de Vosges. They had to replant it in the 1980s and 90s. And there's a requirement by the AOC that the vines have to be old enough to make proper wine. So it had to be declassified under Bourgogne Blanc Mm -hmm. from 1994 to 2014. Oh, my gosh. 2015 was when they could start selling as a Grand Cru. It was the most expensive Bourgogne Blanc in the world for 20 years. There you go. All right. So that's Chambol Mucini. Not very big, kind of coveted wines. Mm -hmm. I think they're a little hard to understand. But I'm going to have to give another go with the Chambault Mucini because God knows I'm not having Le Mucini any time right, soon. Right. Vougeot is red and white for the village wines. Named for this little river called the Vouge. The villages between Von Romani in the south and Chambault Mucini in the north. The commune was owned by the Cistercian monks in the 1100s. They grew white grapes then. They grew red grapes then. Large, famous Grand Cru, the Clos de Vougeot, has vineyard walls. And there is a chateau, there's a former medieval quarry, which Mm. is now a Premier Cru site, Mm -hmm. and there's the historical vineyard. The area was taken during the French Revolution, and now there is an enormous number of producers here. Quality is incredibly variable for all of Vougeot and for the Grand Cru of Vougeot, Mm -hmm. the Clos de Vougeot, it's really, really variable. Lots of ownership. So Small terraces, it's above Les Musigny, 787 to 919 feet, 240 to 280 meters. On the upper slope, you have these shallow soils. On the lower slopes, you have alluvial soils, which we have not heard yet. You don't usually no. have alluvial soils. That's not generally great for high-quality wine. Already Is you there... see that there's a difference here. Right. There's almost no village wines there's a little bit of Premier Cru wine. 75% of it is Grand Cru. For village wines, it's like 11 hectares or 26 acres. And they can be very nice, but good luck finding them. Licorice and violets and mm-hmm. black currant with age, they're more like decayed leaves and stuff like that. The whites, even smaller, 5 hectares, 12 acres. Most of that is Premier Cru. Floral and tropical and mineral, and apparently with age, they become more gingery. Oh, wow. Fig like. That sounds sounds delicious, right? It does. They only have four Premier Cru. Start at 60 bucks, goes to 300 plus. That's just for village wine. It's crazy. It is. The Clos de Vigeau is the big star here 125 acres or 51 hectares, red only. This is a Grand Cru that's 125 acres. It's huge. Maybe one of the most famed Grand Cru vineyards. Only Corton is larger. It was delimited based on the wall enclosure, the, the old wall. The old wall, sure. Not on terroir. How varied is the quality across that much acreage? A lot. Yeah. So it's fragmented into 100 parcels. There's more than 80 producers. But fragmented by how did they... Because it's the it Napoleonic on... law, right? Oh, oh, so, oh, you know, they that, just okay. passed it down and passed it down. Right. right underneath, just a wall separating it, you have basic Bourgogne AOC vineyards mm-hmm. underneath the wall. Village level is in the south. The slopes above and west are Grand Cru. Mm-hmm. So it was founded in 1100 AD by the Cistercian monks. By 1336, the boundaries of Clos de Vigeau were already in place. Oh my gosh. The full wall was actually built in the 1400s. And then they built a chateau, which is still there. There are presses that date back to the 12th century, oh, 14th neat. century. The fraternity of Knights of the Wine Tasters Cup. I'm not going to say it in French. (laughs) It's a Bacchanalian fraternity of Burgundy wine connoisseurs. That's how it's described. They have dinners and culinary events within the Clos de Vigeau because there's a chateau there that they use. Hmm. The Cistercians, though, were owners until the French Revolution in 1789, and then it was sold off at auction. Eventually, actually, really conveniently, it became the property of the son of Napoleon's banker. Oh, nice. Yeah. He owned it for most of the 19th century and then sold it to Negociants in 1889, and that's when it went crazy. The problem for Clos de Vigeau is that it is a patchwork of soils. You have limestone, you have gravel, you've got alluvial. So the upper area, you have 
gravel over limestone. It's gently sloping and very well drained. That's the best part at the top. In this case, it's the top, not the mid-slope. In the mid-slope, you have brown limestone and marl, very good wine. Lower down, it goes to the main road. You have marl and you've got alluvial soils and it retains water. It's not very well drained compared to the rest. That lower area is the area that is generally criticized. Because to your point, there's so many different producers. You can't generalize. Like some are minty and licorice-like and earthy and some are really elegant and some are heavy and... Okay. I mean, it's it's just hard to say. Just from the Burgundy site, in case you wanted to know how they describe it. Oh, uh-oh. It is a suave bouquet, redolent of springtime of blown roses at dawn, of violets in the morning dew, of moist mignonette. $375 plus. Um, why would I want to spend that much on something that seems like a crapshoot? Well, and thank you again. MCS, you're always asking the best questions. Why are we doing this episode and why am I going over these details? The details of what I'm talking about actually only matter for illustrative purposes, Mm -hmm. right? Because most of us are never going to have these wines. But the discussion here is exactly what you're talking about. Why am I going to spend this kind of money? And the point is, this is a pro game. You do not go into Burgundy without knowing who the producers are. You don't go into Burgundy not knowing anything about vintage. If you're going to buy something from a site like Claude de Vigeau, you better make sure that you know exactly who is making that wine and where they're making it from. You could have a horrible producer making wine from the top site. Right. And it won't come out well. You could have an amazing producer on that alluvial soil and it could be spectacular. A lot of it is based on what they're able to do with it. If that top producer made the wine at the top, it would be the best wine in the entire world. So there are many different factors. It's not just all about terroir in Burgundy. It's also about the makers. Who is making this wine? Do they know what they're doing? And are they able to source grapes to make these wines what they should be? Mm -hmm. These wines, especially from a place like Vougeot or Corton, where it's so big, How are you going to know? You're exactly right. So this is not a rookie game. Right. You don't buy these wines, even at the village level, even at the $50 level. Do your homework. You can't do this without looking at who the best producers are Mm -hmm. and then figuring out if something is good enough for you to spend your money on. Mm -hmm. It's a research game with Burgundy. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, that sounds like something I'd really like to try... Well, before you plunk down the money, right. you better make sure that it's somebody good. You could be Don't just buy it because it's $120. Exactly. Yeah. Flage Echezo, which is a hamlet of Von Romani. What is a hamlet, MCIs? You're in real estate. Uh, it's funny enough, I've not developed any hamlets yet. What is so. it, though? Is it like you have a guy who says to be or not to be, or is that how it works? I mean, he, like, you have to have at least one dramatic reading, or... Well, I mean, it was named after him, I assume, right? What is a hamlet? It's some small little area of something? So, I think a hamlet's just a smaller version of a village. Where I mean, they say to be or not to be. Where they say to be or not to be, of okay. course. All right. I just wanted to make sure. Well. Now, did they have to say it in French in their own language or did they have to say it in they English? Had the, no, they had the option for okay. either. Okay. I just want to make sure because I wasn't really sure. Yep. All right. So, Flagy Echezo. It has two Grand Cru, one of which we've had. This is the one Grand Cru. I've had Corton and I've had we've had Echezo before and it was delicious. I don't remember. When? God, it was after we moved here, my dad was here. And we opened one up and it was spectacular. And I can't remember. I'm sure I have it in my picture somewhere because it's the only Oh, I do remember. Yeah. That's right. Really That's delicious. right. That's right. Okay. Like Maurice Sandani, Flage Echezo, because it's a hamlet of Von Romani, the non Grand Cru wines are Von Romani hmm. or AOC Bourgogne. The village is a mile or two kilometers from the vineyards that are on a plain between Vougeot and Von Romani. Echezo was added to Flage because that's the prized vineyard founded by the monks, just like everything else. Name, actually, the Echezo name came from Chezal, which is a word that means a group of dwellings, an ancient small town. Wait, a hamlet. A hamlet, yes. <laughs> Echezo divides Claude de Vigeau from Von Romani, the premier crew of Von Romani. 
You have Musani in the north, Echezo, the Grand Cru. It's 89 acres, 36 hectares. It makes more than half the Grand Cru wine in both Flage Echezo and Von Romani. Hmm. You have altitude, you have some diverse soils. You have marls and you have pebble, upslope, gravel, red alluvial soils, some marl, big variation here. Mid-slope is going to be your best bet with stony, thin soils and a 13% slope. And then the lower areas, you have poorer drainage. Some people, again, don't think that that should be worthy of the Grand Cru. These two areas that are close to each other, Clos de Vigeau and Echezo, have some problems. They have some questions. Echezo is big enough so that there's 11 separate vineyards within the Grand Cru vineyard. Okay. 80 or more families own plots. Talk about too many cooks in the kitchen. Right. The largest landowner is Domaine de la Romanie Conti. Hmm. These prices range from 230 to 2600 US dollars. This is insane. And that's even not like the best Grand Cru. Then you have Grand Echezo, which is more coveted. That's 8.37 hectares, 21 acres. Faces east. It's more like Musini. Less than a third of the size of Echezo. The vineyards here are probably more coveted because they're more homogenous. Mm. Right. Well-drained soils, pebbly limestone, clay, the vines dig deep. It's kind of flat, 3 to 4% grade, but it's at elevation. And you have richer wines, but producer really matters with Grande Chezeau. Domaine Romani Conti is the biggest landowner here. They owned one-third of the Grand Echezo mm-hmm. vineyards. So you're going to have wines that are like $2,600 plus wow. because they own most of it. Bigger, more tannic wines needs at least 10 years. The issue for these wines, again, is that they're just so expensive. Prices are insane. So we get to Von Romani, which is 372 acres or 150 hectares. These wines are clustered with Flage Echezo, 14 Premier Cru, Six Grand Cru, which are 27 hectares or 67 acres. The central part of Bourgogne's necklace. That's what they call it. The pearls in the necklace. Oh, wow. The most famous Grand Cru in the world are here. They do have excellent village, Von Romani, Mm -hmm. but it starts at 75 US dollars or 100 US dollars. That's crazy. Yeah. Von means forest. In 890, the Priory of Saint-Vivant was founded. Benedictine monks, you had Cistercians. In the village, you have limestone and clay marl. The depth of the soil is going to vary. All the Grand Cru are mid-slope. The village are at the top and the bottom of the slope, like everything else. Everything is at elevations mm-hmm. between 250 and 300 meters. These are more like forest floor and smoke and savoriness, like cherries with hmm. brandy. That's the essence here. So a little bit different. 10 years is not unusual even for village wines. Hmm. The Grand Cru are all above the village at mid-slope, and a few feet just separate them. We will start out with Romani Conti, the most famous vineyard in the world. It is 1.81 hectares, or 4.45 acres. That's it. Top Pinot Noir vineyard in the world. 500 cases of wine a year are made. It starts at $18,500 a bottle. That's amazing. It is the most counterfeited wine in the world. The vineyard takes its name from Prince Conti, who was the owner in 1760. He was the cousin of Louis XV, and he reserved this wine for his own consumption. It was auctioned in the late 1800s to the de Villan family, Domaine de la Romani Conti, who still owns it to this day. It has a 6% slope, which allows it perfect drainage. Mm -hmm. It is due east, pebbles and sand, limestone, fossilized oysters, thin soil under which lies hard limestone, well-drained, the best Pinot in the world, some people claim, right? Only 500 cases a year. It's such a small quantity. La Romanie is the smallest AOC in France at 0.84 hectares or two acres. This wine starts at $5,300, so much more reasonable. No, of course. It's a monopole of Domaine du Comte Légère Bel Air. The soils are very similar to Romani Conti, pebbly limestone, thinner. The wines apparently are very similar. General Comte Légère Bel Air and his son took this property over after the Napoleonic Wars, and they still own it to this day. Wow. They leased a little bit of it. You can still, if you go on Wine Searcher, you'll see that a little bit of it was leased to Bouchard, Perefi, until 2005, mm-hmm. and then they pulled it back. In 2001, they made 
their own wines. There was a four-year overlap. But Le Romani is their flagship wine. What makes it uh, slightly inferior? I think there's a couple of things that play in here. First of all, yes, the quality of Romani Conti is amazing, but so is Le Romani. The thing is that the reputation of Domaine de la Romani Conti is so huge that their wines are always going to cost more. So their monopoles are going to cost more. And the other thing is that given the leasing structure and the fact that they sold grapes, it's going to take Ligere Bel Air a little bit more time because they haven't really been exclusively making wine off of that site for that long. And the other thing right now, because the demand of DRC, especially for Romani Conti and Latash, which we'll talk about next, is so high, people are actually starting to buy more Le Romani because even though there's less available, the prices are lower. So they only make about 300 cases versus the 500 or 600 for Domaine de la Romani Conti from Romani Conti or Latash, which is also very small, which we'll talk about in a second, but it's about the reputation. This is the heavens of wine. So everybody wants it. I think that's why Romani Conti is more coveted than Le Romani, as is Latash. So Latash is also very coveted. Anything that's made by Domaine de la Romani Conti is, but Latash and Romani Conti are seen as the two best Pinot Noir vineyards in the world with Musigny and Chabertin and Clos de Bez. Latash's 6.6 hectares or 15 acres, which is pretty large for Von Romani, mm-hmm. solely owned by Domaine de la Romani Conti. So they own Romani Conti, they own Latash. It's one of the most expensive wines in the world, $5,000. Originally owned by the monks at Saint Vivant mm-hmm. Abbey. Sold to a family in 1630, and they owned it until 1760. And DRC bought it in 1933, has owned it since. South of Romani Conti, pebbly limestone, clay at the bottom. They blend from all parts of the slope, so they have perfect wine in every year. A little bit less body with Latash than uh, Romani Conti. And then you have Richborg, which is 20 acres, kind of big, eight hectares. This is north of Romani and Romani Conti, the northernmost Grand Cru in Von Romani, north and northeast facing slopes. So even though the soil is similar to Romani Conti, it's northeast facing. It's got a couple of sections. It's very big, big fruit. It can age for decades, less elegant or delicate than Latash or Romani Conti or Romani. DRC owns half of Richborg. DRC owns Domaine de la Romani Conti, DRC, as I'm calling it, owns most of Romani Saint Vivant, which is 21 acres, 8.37 hectares. It is at a gentler slope, heavier soils, deeper soils, more clay, and yet it is the lightest of the Von Romani Grand Cru. So it's clay limestone, and yet it's more like Musigny. It's aromatic. It doesn't, it defies, yes, it does defy what we would think. $6,000 $6,000 for a bottle Jeez. from, yeah. La Grand Rue is the last Grand Cru. Four acres, 1.65 hectares. It got its AOC in 1992. Again, it was a family who owned it and they didn't care about Grand Cru status or maybe for tax reasons. They didn't oh, want to, yeah. So they got into it later. Uh-huh. It's a monopole of Domaine Francois Lamarche. It was acquired as a wedding gift in the 1930s. Oh, must be That'd nice. That'd be nice, right? Yes. I was thinking that too. Didn't have great quality until the 1970s. They expanded some parcels. They traded with Domaine Romani Conti, mm-hmm. so they got a monopole out of it. And it's the cheapest Grand Cru in Von Romani. Ah. So La Grand Rue is about $500 a bottle. Underlying rock is really, really poor, so the vines struggle. These are all spectacular wines and all hard to come by and very, very coveted. And Von Romani, I can't really speak to what the flavors are or what the differences are, and I'm not sure it matters because, I mean, it's really difficult. If you need difficult. to know, yeah. ask Chad GTP. Right? Yeah, if you need to know, you've got to ask a, a real Burgundy specialist. Oh. I am presenting this information for information just to know that these Grand Cru exist and that apparently they make spectacular Pinot. And there are slight differences between Romani Conti, La Romani, La Tache. You know, these are, mm-hmm. but they are ridiculously expensive wines that come from such small plots. And that's why they are what they are. And a lot of them are owned by one owner. So you can only get them right. from one person. And I think that makes a difference. The final thing is Nuit Saint-Georges. That's where the Cote de Nuit gets its name. Saint-Georges was the patron saint. 
The town has, you know, thousands of years of winemaking. It's divided into two parts. In the north, it's more alluvial and pebbly, more silt. In the south, you have alluvial soils at the top and some marly limestone. And these are almost all reds, 738 acres. This wine is plentiful, starts at about 40 US dollars, can be thousands of dollars. Right. Licorice and truffle. And this is the dividing line between the Cote de Bonne and the Cote de Nuit. It mm-hmm. ends at Nuit Saint-Georges as the last village. You do have some white here, very rare to see it. But this is when the wines start to turn into a bit more lush and plush. So Von Romani is the beginning of that. That's one of the reasons why Von Romani, right. So Mm -hmm. Von Romani is starting to turn into these wines that have some of the power of Gevray Chambertin, but also this beautiful elegance. And it is the sweet spot of wines that are unrivaled. Nothing else tastes like them. So Chambon Musani has a lighter style. Mm -hmm. Von Romani has the fusion of all of the flavor and all of the elegance and texture together. If we were to classify Gevry Chambertin as being pretty bold, Moray Saint-Denis as also being a little bit bolder, and then you move into these softer wines mm-hmm. from Chambol and from the vineyards of Von Romani, and then you get back in Nuit Saint-Georges to where we start with Corton, which slightly bigger wines but they can be softer. And as you get into the Cote de Bone, and we did the two podcasts on the Cote de Bone, you find that the Pinot there is a lot more approachable. Approachable earlier, has less tannin, in some ways less power, but at the same time, well, the wines of Corton are, are not any less powerful, but they, they are just a little bit more enjoyable younger. Oh, okay. And maybe have less complexity. And it's all purely due to terroir. Hard east-facing slopes in the Cote de Nuit, marley soils, and all of that makes a huge difference. So again, the point of these podcasts is not so that you can get googly-eyed over these wines that we're talking about, but more just to understand that these wines are based off of such small nuance, and they basically are the concept of terroir. They are the concept of terroir embodied And that is why I felt like we should do this and go into this level of detail. So there you go. I think that that provides a nice context for it. All right. So we are going to drink what we can afford, which is a basic Bourgogne AOC, which (laughs) fine if we have to. Not anything like what we've described. That's what we're drinking right now. It's a little disappointing, right? But anyway, I think we can describe all these wines as seductive, sexy, voluptuous, voluptuous attractive, yes. virile. Yes. Yep. Smart and funny. Yes. And, oh. Just sensual. I forgot to uh, describe one of them. What was it on the Burgundy website? This wine is the equivalent of a Rubens nude. Oh, that's right. So I think that that's where we can end the show. If you have any other things that you want to add to these unbelievable and very meaningful descriptions uh, of wine that you are going to put in your mouth and drink, you can let us know. But the wine is the equivalent of a Rubens nude is the note that we will leave you on. And we promise that our next podcast will not be half as dorky or detailed. A voluptuous naked lady is a great place for a mic drop. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>